welcome everybody. Glad that you can all join us. As Sona mentioned, our plan had been to hold a SIG in person with Ben facilitating the three case study that is, he's going to talk about today. But as we all know, we're pivoting fast in um, Australia at the moment, so we've had to go online. So we're very happy to welcome you, many of other members from around Australia. Just to give you a little bit of detail on Ben, our facilitator, Ben's a member of the Queensland uh, Chapter Committee. He is a lawyer at, um, and in a previous life, like last year, he was the Director of Admissions and um, Marketing at Toowoomba Grammar School. So he has a wealth of um, knowledge across the two fields. So he's actually worked in a school as well as working with a lawyer. So we really look forward to hearing um, what Ben has to say. It's a facilitated discussion. So Ben does want you to join in and ask questions. It, we're just not gonna listen to Ben as much as we want to hear his wise words. Thanks everybody. All right, thank you, Sue. Thank you for that lovely introduction um, and good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's unfortunate that we have to meet uh, virtually, although I was saying to Sue and Sona before that um, had COVID struck 20 years ago, um, we wouldn't be able to do this. Um, so if there's any uh, silver lining from when COVID hitting, at least we've got technology which allows us to, to connect. Um, as Sue indicated, today is very much about being as interactive as possible. Um, with the situations or, or the, the issues I'm going to look at, yes, there is some law, um, there is, there is quite a lot of law there, but more importantly, people in your roles, it's about practical realities. And I know um, back when I had my, my, uh, edu well, my education hat on, um, obviously I dealt with lawyers because um, I practised before I, I went and worked at a school, practised law, that is. And um, one thing lawyers are good at doing is, is giving legal advice. Um, sometimes... Um, uh, we aren't as good as giving it in pra as practical terms as possible. So what I like to do in my practice now is to make sure that obviously the legal principles are very much paramount, but also putting it in a practical perspective because at the end of the day, the nuts and bolts of, of admissions officers um, and how they operate and how they interact is very much a practical reality. And um, I think that's one of the, one of the benefits um, I've been able to draw from my time at a school and then going back into legal practice. All right, so we've got three topics we're going to hit, uh, we're going to cover today. And please, please interact as much as possible because the more we interact, uh, the more collaboration uh, we have, the, the better. Um, for some of these, there's no right or wrong answers. Okay, I have my views, um, but they're not always they're not always shared by other by other colleagues. And um, I very much welcome you to share your views and to, to give your points of view, because I think that's very, very important. Okay, so we're going to, and pardon me for getting this close to the camera, I've just had to rearrange things. I don't really get this close to a camera and I have to look up, so my apologies for that, because my screen is up. And by the way, unfortunately, because of my technology, I can't see you, all I can see is my slides. So we're going to start with enrolling a student from a separated family that's not amicable. So this is, a, this is very much, a situation that is unfortunately quite common and uh, I know um, is a situation which 
for, in, in some circumstances, is actually quite stressful, uh, quite stressful people for people in enrolments and admissions offices. Um, so we're going to go through about five or six scenarios. I'm going to put the scenario up and then I'm going to um, ask for people to, you know, say what they think, how they would handle that situation. And then once we've all finished that, I'll, I'll say how I would see it and if there's any law associated with it and also the practical realities of it. So um, I've just set the background there. So, yeah, as you can see, Mr and Mrs Hogg uh, are separated and do not like each other. They have a son, Rodney, who will be going into Year 7 in 2023. And there's also a, a lucky door prize. I have a certain um, love for cricket. So a lot of my characters actually have a, uh, a cricketing background. So you may have picked that first one there. Um, and there are a few more to follow. Okay. So scenario one, which we're going to, to chat about, is uh, Mrs Hogg wants Rodney to enrol at your school and she's willing to pay all of the school fees. Mr Hogg does not want Rodney to enrol at your school, okay? So Mrs Hogg wants it, Mr Hogg doesn't want it. There's a court order which states that both parents must agree on which school Rodney is to attend. So what do we do in this situation? Again, please, uh, please interact. The more we interact, the more we collaborate, the more we get out of it. Obviously, if there's no one uh, wants to do that, then obviously I'll, I'll say what I think. But please, uh, have we got any takers for how this would be handled in the first instance? Yes, hello, Ben. Uh, I'm happy to have a punt, if you like. Um, sure. We had this scenario last week. Uh, mm -hmm. And just to make it extra spicy, uh, both yeah. of the parents were lawyers. So um, I was guaranteed to have a good time. Um, a, uh, in our scenario, um, we got advice and while we could have enrolled the child under just the mother's uh, name, um, from what we were told, uh, we, didn't, we decided that we wanted them to be grown-ups and come to the decision first and then we'll look at it. Yep, yep. Ben, I have some comments. I'll read through some of the comments that have come through. I, I can't see them, Sona, because I don't have the, uh, the, the screen in front I'm, of me, so please read them out. I'm, I'm happy to read them out. All right. So I've got uh, Philip who said, tell the parents to work it out. Yep. And I have a C. Jacobs who says, speak with Mr. Hogg to understand his concerns with enrollment. Yep. Alice, who says we would require both parents to sign enrollment agreement before yep. confirming enrollment. Yep. And okay. lastly, all, we must abide by court order. Yep. They're all uh, they're all really um, uh, worthwhile answers. And 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 as uh, when I was, back when I was doing my article clerkship, um, my supervising partner said to me, Ben, um, lawyers don't like black and white; they love grey. Because when there's grey, there's an issue. When there's an issue, uh, lawyers can uh, uh, intervene and, and obviously make money. Um, and this is no different. Um, and the response there from my colleague there at the beginning who just said that they had legal advice in relation to how that's done, um, uh, it, it would more than likely be there would be another lawyer who would respectfully disagree with that particular opinion. And that's not to say that they're, they're incorrect. And that's why eventually these matters sometimes go off to court. Uh, to get a judge determination, and then that can be appealed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I suppose the way I've looked at it is um, uh, court orders sometimes place what's called a positive obligation on a school, okay? So a positive obligation is where a court order says a school must do something, 
Now, it's not very common. It's not very common where, where an order, a court order will say a school must do this. But where that particular order is, if there is an order like that, then obviously a school has a positive obligation and must follow the, the order of the court. Um, in this particular instance, I would suggest that there is no court order, sorry, there, is a, there isn't a court order which says the, the school must ensure that uh, Rod, Rodney goes to uh, a certain, to your school. That's an order for the parents to do that. Um, however, in this particular instance, um, I think the safest option, in my view, um, would be to um, would be to have the parents agree that Rodney was to come to the school um, before you would actually enrol enrol him. Um, a lot of the time, you've, I suppose it's, it's a bit of a cost benefit. Um, uh, analysis in that um, are you going to get involved in um, unproductive with respect to unproductive time uh, worrying about is the school going to be involved in proceedings and things like that when um, the easiest thing would be to say look love to have Rodney at the school but you really need to agree before before we proceed any further um, any any further commentary on that particular scenario yeah, Trish Cartwright from MacArthur Anglican in Sydney, um, enjoying lockdown. Um, this is a bit of light relief, believe it or not. Um, I would just ask the question, so if the, um, you know, the mother's prepared to enrol and pay all the school fees, and even if we accepted that, which in this case, we would probably yeah, go down this um, path of communication with the father. But even if we did accept that, he is still the biological father of the child and can then have rights to information about the enrolment of the child at the school. Um, is that not correct, even though he has not signed the enrolment agreement? Um, okay, okay. Um, he's not a part, he wouldn't be a party to the contract um, in that particular instance. So um, your privacy policy, which regulates obviously personal information and, and that particular and that, that material is, is, um, is, forms part of that enrolment contract. That doesn't mean he doesn't have rights under the Privacy Act. Um, as to how he would access that information, I must admit, for today's topic, I haven't turned my mind to it. Um, um, I, I think it, it... That's okay. I don't want to take you off topic for what you're doing. Sorry. No, you're no, look, it's a really good point, actually. It's a really, really good point. I think, you know, if it was to be litigated... Um, then he could access information through the subpoena process. I mean, that would be pretty. That that would be. Um, but we're getting we're getting down a track which probably is pretty remote. It's probably not going to happen. But I suppose thinking about it logically, you know, there there would be. Um, um, you could subpoena information in relation to the enrolment process and what the school did and how they reacted and things like that. Um, that's just thinking off the top of my head. But yeah, again, it's a good point. There's, and, and the thing is, with today's discussion, there's no right or wrong answers. It's a it's a it's a collegial discussion about matters which are really relevant to enrolment officers because these things happen. Uh, well, not every day, but they happen pretty frequently. All right, we'll move along because we've got another four scenarios to get through. And just a few more, few more comments, just on that scenario. Uh, Trish, yes, my understanding is that parents have the right unless their court order states otherwise. Mm -hmm. Scott, my understanding is that all parents have rights to look at their child's report. I have Liz who has said, apologies, I'm in a shared office. 
we always insist with having consent from both parents yeah. while we understand one parent mm -hmm. may take on the responsibility of the enrollment and fees we will insist on written consent from the other parent that the enrollment at the college can proceed yeah. and again there's a lot you know there's, there's there's the legal aspect of it with respect to the court orders but then also as i said at the beginning of this presentation um, enrolments and admissions officers are very practical officers and you've also got to think about the practical realities of, of relationships because obviously relationships are key in those particular offices and um, um, it, it a lot of the time is it is about managing those relationships and and I think part of the way I, I of, of me, me formulating my view that I probably wouldn't enrol the child is about managing those relationships um, all right, just moving right along to scenario two. So we've got Mrs Hogg wants to enrol uh, Rodney at your school and will pay all the school fees. Mr Hogg doesn't want to. And in this particular scenario, it's the same as the first one, except there's no court orders, okay? So there's no court orders saying, you know, you can or you can't, okay? Um, open that one up to the floor. What do people think about that? Any takers? So basically the same as the first scenario, but there's no there's no order of the court. Um, yes, I have a response. Sure. Okay, so I'm uh, Danielle Tapper at St. Luke's Grammar School. Um, we've actually had a situation, unfortunately, it was about 10 years ago, and it's really changed our practices ever since, but we did enrol somebody without both consent. Um, and then it just turned around that the dad then unenrolled him and then the mum re-enrolled him. And it's just like, okay, we don't want to go down that path. So realistically now, every time we have this situation, we do not even proceed with it unless we have um, at least obviously one signature on the application form. And if the other person or parent is not wanting to sign it, then they we must have it in writing um, that they are okay with it and, and that type of thing, which I think has been said before, but literally the best thing is to look long-term because it's going to be a nightmare going forward if you have a student at the school that parents are not, you know, wanting, both parents aren't wanting or okay with that person being there. It's just, it causes so many issues and the poor child is in the middle. So we make sure that the parents are both in agreement and they've sorted their um, situation out before they enrol. Yeah, that's a, that's a good response. I, I, that's that's probably the that's probably the way I proceed on that. Um, again, I always required both parents to agree, um, but that's not to say that you know other people might have a different view. And I'd be I'd, I'd like to hear if there are people who who do have a different view and and and, and why. And and there, as I said, there's no right or wrong answer. All the reviews that are coming is that both parents must consent. Yes. So yeah. all, all the comments that are coming in, Ben, say that. We have had situations previously where we have enrolled when one of the parents doesn't consent. But in those circumstances, it's when uh, the child is living with that parent and the other, and they only see the other parent, but they don't overnight with the other parent. Um, yeah. And in those cases, we, we would never let the parent who's not on the contract cancel a contract because they can't because they're not on it. So... Yeah. Uh, there are circumstances when we've done it, but it's pretty rare and it's a lot easier. If there's a court order that states that there's, there's sole parenting responsibility, it's, it's a done deal, but otherwise it gets a little bit tricky. I think this scenario also highlights practicalities again, because at law there's, no, there's nothing there to um, prevent you from enrolling uh, Rodney. Um, but the practical reality is you're going to have a big fight on your hands, most likely, if you do. And I think 
a lot of the time that should be that should be guiding um, your judgment in relation to to this. Any other takers? Um, no. Okay, we'll keep skipping on because we've got a bit to get through. It's already ten to three. Okay. Scenario three, Mrs. Hogg wants Rodney to enrol at your school or pay all the school fees. <clears throat> uh, Mr. Hogg states, sorry, Mrs. Hogg states that she hasn't seen Rodney um, for and, and not heard from him for over 12 months and there are no court orders. So basically we've got a, a, an absent, uh, absent um, father um, and she and Rodney haven't heard from him in that time. She wants to enrol Rodney. She's going to pay the school fees. What do we do in that situation? Any any takers? This is actually not an uncommon situation. And bearing in mind, um, sometimes, and this is no disrespect to my mystical mystical character, Mrs. Hogg, but sometimes um, parents don't always tell you all the circumstances. If that's a, a respectful way of saying it. Um, any takers? Uh We've got Debbie who said we would accept the enrollment with one parent. Another one, accept the enrollment with one signature, get a stat declaration. Okay. Okay. Um, and and can I, uh, the person, and that's, that's interesting actually, and it's actually not such a bad, a bad um, concept. Uh, with that statutory declaration for that, from that person, is that a statutory declaration that's um, what the mother is telling you is is true and correct in relation to the absence of, of the father. Is that essentially what you're saying? Presumably it is. Uh, and that is correct. Good, yeah, yes. and that's a good piece, that's a good piece of insurance. It's, it's a smart thing to do. And it might it might sound like a, a bit of an elaborate step, but it's it's uh, it's good thinking. It's a smart thing to do because obviously, um, as I said, sometimes. Only sometimes uh, you don't get the full circumstances and all of a sudden Mr Hogg comes out of the blue from nowhere and has a completely different um, uh, view on the world. And, yeah, you've got that, that, uh, that stat deck from, from Mrs Hogg saying, the, uh, you're saying A and you've acted on that, then um, you have covered your tracks somewhat. So, um, yeah. Any, any other input? Yes. I've asked for the last contact details of Mr Hogg and emailed him previously. I also asked for a stat deck. Then Sophie says one parent, some only have one parent listed on the birth certificate. Uh, yeah. Liz true. says, sorry. Liz says we asked the parent mother to put it in writing that the father is not in Rodney's life and she is solely responsible for the enrollment and payment of fees. Uh, Alison, I would request court order stating mother is responsible for choosing the school and paying fees. Right. In this particular instance, there's no court order, um, but you can get a court order. Uh, uh, you can, you can, you could get a court order to that effect, but if you wanted to, but yeah, have to pay for it. They're, they're all they're all really good responses, Sona. Um, I suppose the way I approach the situation is obviously respectfully. You ask um, Mrs. Hogg, you know, um, you just do a bit more prodding and you do it respectfully. Uh, you ask to get the contact details of Mr. Hogg and say, look, you know, you'd like to make contact with him. Does she mind? 
And obviously, if she said, well, she does, if she did mind, then then probably the discussion would finish then because I think a prudent uh, enrolments officer would ensure that um, they at least made that um, ask that question and then once they have that information, they can act on it. And if they're not willing to give that information, then I think that's probably where, where you finish. Um, you make contact or you attempt to make contact with, with, the, with the father. Um, I suppose, and, and, and let's say you do make contact with him, I suppose you have to then very respectfully, and, and actually prior, prior to making contact with him, you, will, you probably should, well, no, you probably should get the consent of Mrs Hogg to discuss the situation with uh, Mr Hogg and uh, the fact that he's been absent for that period of time, um, and you may get a different, you may get a different um, a set of instructions in, uh, from him in relation to that. So I suppose what I'm, I'm saying is you should do some fact finding. Again, there's no law behind this um, uh, because there aren't any court orders. It's just a matter of fact finding, uh, and. In my, in my view, if, you, if you've, you've attempted to make contact with him and you can't make contact with him, and, and again, I would emphasise, and, and most likely you already do, um, is take as many detailed notes as possible and, and take them, uh, don't, don't, don't make the phone call or have the interview and then do them the next day. Do them as, as soon as possible after the communication and obviously file them away. And again, that's some more, that's some more insurance. And provided I've done all those particular things, I've attempted to contact him. Uh, you've tried a number of times, and there's no answer. Um, you go to the you go to the extent of having Mrs. Hogg's uh, uh, first that deck. I think you've got some good insurance then that you could then pursue, or that you could then um, uh, undertake undertake the enrolment. Ben, can I ask a quick question? Sorry. Sure. Sure, absolutely. Uh, Gabby Moore from North Home Grammar in Sydney. Um, we actually had something similar where a very absent father for years and years, so the mum enrolled three children. Uh, she pays the fees. And in the last 12 months, dad has come forward saying he wanted to receive reports and, um, and just information from the school about where the children were at. Um, right. You know, local orders in place. You know, mum is very... Um, it's not an amicable situation and mum is not very happy about the fact that he can have access. She checked with her lawyer. The lawyer said it's in her best interest to allow that access, but she's very, very unhappy about that. Um, can you shed some light? He does have rights to... Sorry, you, you broke up a bit then, Gab. Could you just... Um, sorry, about halfway you, it just broke up and I couldn't quite hear. Yeah. So um, mum and roller children are paying the fees. Dad hasn't been around for years and years. And suddenly he turns up and he wants access to reports and to information from the school, information about where the children are at at school. So basically he wants to receive emails and communication on a regular basis from school. Mum is incredibly unhappy about that. She did actually her uh, advice with her lawyer who said to in her best interest to allow dad to have that access. He has no other involvement with the children, but she's so, was, was her lawyer saying it was in her best interest to allow him to have access to the information? That's correct, yes. Okay. Okay. Um, so look, we have, but she's just incredibly unhappy about it and doesn't yeah. want him to receive X and Y, and we just can't stipulate what he can or can't receive. And, and, and I'm not sure, you know, her, her lawyer's thought process, but I, I imagine, and again, this is just me trying to think out loud, I imagine it was probably to do with the fact that um, 
he could bring an application through the courts to actually make that happen anyway. I think that's probably and to save yourself the hassle and the the emotion and and the financial you know the financial impact of doing that um, to, to to provide that information. Um, I, I think just playing out you know she's the sole um, she's a sole parent on the enrolment contract, so she's the only one that has a contract with the school, and she has obviously has rights in relation to that. Um, he has no rights under contract because he doesn't have a contract with the school. Um, but um, it may well be that he'd bring an application through the uh, the Federal Circuit Court or the Family Court uh, seeking um, you know, an order that that type of material be provided. That's the, that's the only, that's probably what I think that lawyer was, the, the way they were thinking. And um, again, it's a, it's a practical, it's a practical response and, um, I think it's probably a, it's probably the right response um, from a practicality's point of view, but again, each particular situation is going to be different, and um, uh, a lot of the practical responses you make will most likely reflect the relationship and your knowledge of the relationship of the parties in particular. Um, but I, I don't necessarily disagree um, with, with that with that position. But again, that's unique to that particular situation. All right. Thank you. Any, any further commentary on scenario three? We've got two more to get through before we yeah, hit the next. There are two questions just with this scenario. Yeah. How long do you wait for the second parent to sign when you have emailed and phoned the second parent several times and obviously no court order has been produced? So how long? You okay, again, that's okay. subjective. And I suppose it's whether or not you've actually made contact with them. Um, and if you have made contact with them, you know, um, you might try a couple of times and on the third time you say, look, if you don't get back to me, um, my, my instructions are that I'm going to enrol your son or daughter. Um, obviously, if you've tried a couple of, if you haven't made any contact with them and then you send them an email and they don't respond to that, then, you know, you might wait a week and then um, then, you, then you would enrol. Um, again, That's subjective. Yep. And last comment, biological parents have rights, don't they, even if there are no court orders? Um, again, you've got to, you've got to ask what particular, what, what, what right it arises under. Um, and um, a right will arise under, obviously, contract, if you have a contract. Um, um, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head what particular right, of, I mean, a biological parent, um, and actually a good example is that one where um, there's no one on the on the birth certificate. Um, the father's not on the birth certificate. In that particular situation, that person is the biological father of the child, um, but I just can't see how that particular person would have um, a right to all of a sudden say, well, I need to have that, that information about that particular child. Um, obviously, if there was a contract, they have rights under contract. Um, and again, moving to the practicalities of the situation, um, if indeed, um, if indeed you think there's going to be some argy bargy about it, it's a matter of trying to ensure that um, you um, make the process as smooth as possible. And if indeed you think there's going to be some argy bargy, you might talk to the to the the parent who um, and let's say Mrs. Hogg in this situation and say to her, look, 
um, it may well be in your best interest to allow them to have the information. Because at the end of the day, if the information is just, I shouldn't say just, if it's, it's report cards and things like that, things that aren't too, too sensitive, then there's not a lot of, you're not giving up a lot to provide that information, which is going to extinguish that particular situation, that, 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 um, that stressful situation, if you like. All right, we might move along to scenario four. Um, Mrs Hogg wants Rodney to enrol at your school or pay all the school fees. Um, Mrs Hogg states that she and Rodney have not heard. So same situation, except uh, there's a court order which states that both parents must agree on which school Rodney is to attend. So the same as scenario three, the only difference is um, there's a court order that, uh, that says what school he must attend. So Mr Hogg hasn't been seen, but there is a court order. So what do we do in this situation? Any takers? Then we have to honor the court order, need both signatures. There's a court order, I think that's concrete. Yep. Honor the court order. Yep, so honor the court order. And yeah, exactly. I won't spend too long this because it's sort of a uh, it's a segue into the next scenario, which is the last scenario, which is an interesting one. Um, again, uh, in this particular situation, um, boiling it down, I wouldn't I wouldn't enrol this particular student, um, even though Mr. Hogg has been absent. Again, you're relying on Mrs. Hogg telling you the full circumstances. Yes, you could get a stat tech to say that she's she's done all that, um, but it may well be all of a sudden Mr. Hogg appears out of the blue. Um, and waves his court order and says, well, hey, have a look at this. Uh, why didn't you follow this? And again, you're in a world of pain. Um, so again, it's about managing the practical situation. Um, and even though the court order may not place a positive obligation on the school to do something, as I discussed in the first scenario, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean, um, uh, it, it, well, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, you wouldn't, uh, not enrol, uh, sorry, you, you wouldn't enrol uh, the child, um, even though there's no positive obligation on the school to do it, the school can still say no in that situation. Okay, last one, scenario five. So Mrs Hogg wants to enrol Rodney at your school, pay the school fees, it's the same. Um, the only difference... Uh, you've sorry, you've tried to contact Mr. Hogg on numerous occasions, but he doesn't return your call. Okay, so he's not absent, but you've tried to you've tried to contact him. There is a court order which states that both parents uh, are to have equal shared responsibility for Rodney, which involves making a decision about a major long-term issue in relation to Rodney. It doesn't say the same thing about schools. It just say it just says that they have to um, they have to. Uh, make a um, any lo major long-term decision, which enrolling a child at a school, in my view, would be. Um, they have to um, they have to make that uh, equally. So, how would how would people um, approach this situation? And we're going to bring in some legislation just to make every to make it uh, a bit more interesting. And if anyone knows that piece of legislation, that would be impressive. Comments coming in? Yep. Uh, Miriam, both parent signatures are needed. We advise parents up front. Again, Ravina, both parents must agree. 
Liz would not enroll without Mr. Hughes Hogg's consent. Uh, Debbie would not enroll unless both parents agree, both parties agreed. So again, again, would, Alice wouldn't enroll without both signatures. So common thread. Okay. Yep. All right. And and I I wouldn't again personally I wouldn't enroll on this one as well. Okay. But I want to draw your attention. So if we can just remember that particular scenario to section 65, capital D, capital A, capital C, four of the Family Law Act, which is a bit of a mouthful, and we'll go through it. And pardon me, I've got to look up to the screen because I haven't got it in front of me. Um, you'll see uh, this section applies if under a parenting order, two or more persons are to share parental responsibility for a child, which is the case in the scenario we've got. The exercise of that parental responsibility involves making a decision about a major long-term issue in relation to the child, which is the situation. Okay. Subsection two says the order is taken to require the decision to be made jointly by those persons. Okay. So there is an obligation under section 65 DAC4 uh, that, that the decision is to be made jointly. Okay. Down to subsection three, the order is taken to require each of these persons or those persons to consult with each other in relation to the decision about that issue and to make a genuine effort to come to a joint decision. Okay. So you can see where this provision is going and then we go down to subsection four and this is where uh, it impacts on an enrolments office admissions office to avoid doubt this section does not require any other person to establish before acting on a decision about the child communicated by one of those persons that the decision has been made jointly so what this provision actually means is if mrs hogg rings you up and says that mr hogg and i have discussed this um, and we're good to go, you've tried to ring Mr Hogg or contact him and he hasn't got back to you, but she says to you, you know, we've discussed this. Subsection 4 doesn't require you actually to confirm that with him. So in other words, in that particular situation, you could go off her, off her word and actually uh, enrol, enrol a child. Now, um, that's as a matter of law, but let's go, let's go to the practicalities. Can you imagine ringing up Mr Hogg and saying to him, oh, Mr Hogg, um, by the way, uh, we have enrolled uh, Rodney and we relied on Section 65, capital D, capital A, capital C, uh, subsection 4 to do it. I hope you have a great day. Um, I, don't think, I don't think you'll have a very um, happy uh, father in that particular situation. Has anyone ever come across this situation before and, and this particular uh, scenario? Um, Scott from Churchy. Uh, we had a similar situation in my scenario before with the two lawyers. Uh, we sent, started the enrolment process and sent out emails to both parents. And um, uh, one of the parents got back to us uh, we sent three emails, actually, and one of the parents got back to us and said, uh, fantastic, but we've decided against it. We won't go ahead with the enrolment. And uh, so we cancelled the boy's enrolment. And then um, six, nine months later, the mother calls up and says, uh, we, how's the enrolment going? Um, and I said, well, your husband's split. And she said, my ex-husband. And she hadn't notified us that they'd, they'd split up. And he had cancelled the enrolment on, on her in the meantime. Uh, so that's similar uh, and equally awkward. 
that yes, very. And and again, um, you could in that situation just thinking on my feet um, rely upon that because obviously. But was there a court order in this particular situation, Scott? Uh, no, no court order at this moment. Okay. We're going to court, and they wanted uh, she wanted us to proceed with enrolment so she could take because I apparently gave us some leverage in court, but we didn't. Yeah. So this particular scenario does, this particular provision, you do have to have a court order and you have to have those particular um, elements that are set out in 1A and 1B of um, subsection 1A and 1B uh, for this to be relevant. I suppose I'm just I'm just using this as an example of what, what you know, um, what you can do in, in your particular portfolios. However, practically um, relying on subsection 4, um, you, you, you're going to get yourself a world of pain, I would say, if that was the case. So it, I suppose to answer this question, I want you to be aware of this particular provision. Um, but in my view, um, you you wouldn't uh, you, you wouldn't enrol the child, and you would um, um, you would just counsel the mother and say, look, we've tried. Um, there is a uh, there is a court order in relation to these issues or to, to major long term issues, which would include enrolling enrolling. Um, uh, oddly, um, we really do need to have two signatories on the um, on the contract enrolment to proceed. And I suppose again, it's a, it's a matter of practicality of trying to avoid um, a situation which could be could could be costly, could be any litigation is costly, and any litigation is stressful. And it's just something you don't need in a, in an office in one of the busiest offices in the school. Uh, is that is uh, these types of uh, these types of issues. All right, I'm mindful of time. We've spent 40 minutes on, on that particular topic. Um, so if there's any, well, before we, we head off to the next topic, is there any questions that anyone wants to put to the floor before we head to the next topic? There are a few questions, Ben. But, Hi. Yeah, go ahead. Hi there, my name's Jo. I'm from the Armadale School. Um, if we have uh, parents, uh, it's in relation to two names on a contract. Um, if there's some reticence from one of those parties to put their name on the contract because they don't want to be liable for the fees, but however, in theory, their support, you know, they're okay with the enrolment, will that be sufficient to... Yeah, that's, um, that's right. I think it would be um, nice... Sorry, if, as sorry. long as we get email to support that. Absolutely, Joe, absolutely. But so that's fine. I suppose you think... Uh, a bit further out, you, you want to you want to do everything you can to try and get both signatories onto the enrolment contract. Obviously, presumably it's a joint and several. It's got a joint and several liability clause on your particular enrolment contract, which means um, if one parent's not able to pay it, then you can pursue the other person individually. Um, I think um, everyone in enrolment officers probably appreciate just the importance of getting both names on that particular document um, for that purpose, uh, principally. But as for um, them being reluctant to put their name on it, but still wanting to get that material. Yes, provided you got something from the other parents saying they can have that material, then yeah, that's fine. That's a good process to go to go under. Okay, thank you. Then, but just with, if they can't contact Mr. Hogg, they've made attempt, yep. uh, provided a time frame to come back uh, or with questions, but there's no contact. Can they still proceed if they put maybe a stat deck on file? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I, and again, there's no there's no positive obligation on the school. 
in this particular instance, okay? If there was a positive obligation on the school from the court, then you must follow that. There's no positive obligation. It just says the parties must um, um, must make joint decisions about major long-term issues, not the school. Um, and you've done all those things. You've done your due diligence and you are, I suppose, you've assessed the, the risk, or if that's the right word, the, the likelihood of this going a bit sour and it's going to consume your time and, and money. And if you've got all those things that are right and you're happy to do it, then yes. Um, I suppose I'm a cautious character. Um, most lawyers are cautious. And um, that, that's just my view, but it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily, you know, uh, the, the, the other view, the counter view is not incorrect either. All right, if we could um, move right along to the next topic, which is um, enrolling a student that has a learning-based uh, disability. And this is a really, really hot topic. Um, and I'll just set the background before I go into some commentary on it. So um, again, I, I'm, I'm a, a cricket fanatic from the, uh, from the 80s, so you may pick up on this one. Uh, the Garner family have a son, Joel, uh, who has uh, ASD and a mild intellectual disability. Uh, they want to enrol him at your school starting in year seven in 2023. Your school has just spent $20 million building a new indoor pool. What do you do? Um, so have we got any takers? Hi, it's Marion. It's Marion from Santa Sabina in Strathfield. How are you? Good, Marion. How are you? Good. I think um, regardless of your lovely $20 million pool um, under the Disability Act, we would gather as much information from that family, reports, health reports, etc. We would put in place, um, so the child would be put on the waiting list. You can't discriminate on that ground. We would then... Um, organise the enrolment interview, um, so potentially with the principal, but also with our head of inclusive education. So the way we do it at our school, we ensure that the parents have the opportunity to sit down with the head of inclusive education to understand what the school has, how we provide for children with diverse learning needs. And it allows the parents to take away as much information as they can to assist them in the decision about where their son or daughter will go to school. Um, we have, because we're not academically selective, we have quite a diverse um, student population. And often in these circumstances, it can take months until the enrolment is either, thank you very much, but we don't feel it's the right school for our child, or the family chooses to take the enrolment place that's being offered with the understanding of what the school can do to support their child in their learning journey. Yep, yep. That's, that's very, very comprehensive. Yeah, it's really um, good. Um, I, I have had the opportunity to learn a lot from the head of inclusive education. We've had two in the time I've been there. Um, so she's made it very Clear, but it's been really helpful in the our enrolment team to understand how we need to go about the process. Sure, sure. Anyone else? I open up to the floor. I think the more more input we have on this, the better. It's very collegial and it's um, very collaborative. 
We um, we have a process where we would provide a three-month period to collect all the data that's required and give the parents time to get any reports that we need. So we uh, refer to our learning enrichment team. Um, they take over the enrolment um, prior to interview and meet with the parents, understand exactly what the needs of the child are, advise of any other reports that we require. Um, and we provide a three-month period for them to do that. Um, we also have a consent form for them to sign and uh, that allows our learning enrichment teacher to speak to those service providers to gain an understanding of what treatments or what um, therapies the child might be undergoing, and then that moves to interview. Yep. Okay. All good. Anyone else? I have a question from Gabby Moore. Under yes, what ground, I have a question. Mm -hmm. Under what grounds can you say the school is not the right school for their child? Okay, we'll get there. We'll, we, that's a, yes, well, I, I will address that very much, um, very shortly. Okay, and a comment from Philip. Uh, gather relevant information on the disability, determine the arrangements you would make as a school, discuss this with the parents, and if the parents agree, just went out, and if the parents agree, proceed with the enrollment. Okay, all right. Um, anyone else before I start going into more, more general discussion? There is one more comment. Accept uh, application, exceptional learners review, permission form from parent to contact specialist and current school, review of our ability to support and then meet with parents to explain what they can expect if enrollment was to proceed. If enrollment was to proceed, parents then make their decision with full awareness and that's it yeah okay. all right um this is a probably one of the toughest areas that people in enrollments and admissions officers and also um learning support special needs coordinators dealing um most of you have probably heard of the disability standards for education um, which is a Commonwealth piece of legislation, uh, the Disability Discrimination Act, uh, which is a Commonwealth piece of legislation, also the Anti-Discrimination Act of Queensland. Now, those three pieces of legislation, and, and I apologise to my interstate colleagues, you have, um, you have uh, similar legislation in relation to the Anti-Discrimination Act of Queensland. You have, I know Victoria's got the Equal Opportunity Act. Um, I'm pretty sure New South Wales is the Anti-Discrimination Act in New South Wales. Those particular state... Um, acts apply to those particular jurisdictions, but definitely the Commonwealth legislation um, applies across the Commonwealth. Now, the Disability Standards for Education 2005 is really is the benchmark. Um, and, um, and with all due respect to schools, um, it's not uncommon for schools to not actually get this right. And um, you will find that uh, families who have children with disabilities are quite aware of, of their rights and which is which is which is fair which is very very fair and that's why we have this legislation to protect their rights um, you may also be aware of the uh, uh, the disability royal commission it's looking at a number of quite a number of things um, but one of the things it's also it, it's looking at is is, is education and um, just that question about uh, when can you say this is not the right school for you um, 
the Royal Commission has been uh, in operation now about 18 months. It's, it's been run by Ronald Sackville, who's a former uh, federal court, I think he was Chief Justice of the Federal Court, um, a very experienced and well-respected judge. Uh, and he is, the, he is the chair of the commission. And uh, they took uh, evidence, or they did hearings, I should say, in Queensland uh, late, la or sorry, mid last year. And, um, and they made an interim report in October last year. And that interim report, I think, was five or 600 pages. Um, and it was condensed actually into an 80 page summary, which if you do get a chance, you should have a look at it um, because it is, it is, a lot of it is irrelevant to, to schools. Um, they looked at these things called areas of further inquiry. And one of those areas of further inquiry was called gatekeeping. Okay, and, and I really, you really need to um, reflect on this. Um, and I'm gonna read it, um, uh, the, the quote from, from, the, um, from the commission. It says, gatekeeping practices and the denial or informed discouragement of students with disability from attending the schools or educational settings of their or their family's choice Factors that contribute to gatekeeping and the connection of this may have to the educational neglect. That's an area of further inquiry which the, which the Commission is going to look at. Okay. So, in other words, that's a situation where you might have a child, in this particular instance, uh, Joel, who has ASD and mild, and a mild intellectual disability, and he goes to school ABC, and his family really want him to go to that school, and school ABC says, Look, we'd really love to have you, but um, it's probably not the right fit for you. Um, we've got a fast-paced curriculum. We're an academic school. Um, you, you're better off at school X, Y, Z. That's gatekeeping, and that's unlawful. Um, the process for how you manage or not manage how you enrol a child similar to Joel's situation is set out in the education of the disability education. Disability Standards for Education, and I'm going to step you through that. Um, the first thing, obviously, is um, um, the steps which you must take in your office. So uh, 4.2 of the standards says the education provider must take reasonable steps to ensure that the prospective student is able to seek admission to or apply for enrolment in the institution on the same basis as a prospective student without a disability and without experiencing discrimination. So it's pretty clear, okay? You have to treat them on the same basis as someone who doesn't have that disability. Uh, and um, uh, standard section or section 2.2 of the standards says as an education provider treats a prospective student with a disability on the same basis as a prospective student without a disability, if the provider makes uh, any major decisions about admission or enrolment on the basis that reasonable adjustments will be made. And I think um, one of my colleagues there in the audience actually referred to adjustments, what adjustments they make. So um, very much so when uh, the Ghana family comes in, it's very much um, an open collaborative discussion. So we know we have to treat them on the same basis as someone who doesn't have that particular disability. The standards set out um, very clearly the obligation to consult. Um, and um, I think one of, one, of, one of you actually mentioned that, what particular consultation process um, you go through. And basically what it is, is um, understanding the disability that the child has, 
um, asking the family for information in relation to that. That's really important because without that information, you can't make decisions about what adjustments you can make, how those adjustments are going to affect your budget, how those adjustments are going to affect other children, how those adjustments are going to affect other staff. Okay, so that fact-finding mission about uh, information about the disability is, is very, very important. Um, and that's a collaborative approach. So it's a matter of sitting down with um, your head of diverse learning or your learning support coordinator, any of the other educators who will uh, be involved. And the other one is if indeed the child has a physical disability. Um, obviously, a physical disability is going to affect their ability to access buildings and things like that. So in those particular instances, it would be a really prudent thing to do to get your property manager, uh, who may not be an educator, but they know a lot about property and, and, and access to buildings and what they need to do. So they would be part of the discussion as well. So the standards make it incumbent upon schools to have that consultation process with the family, and that is very, very important. And every time you do this, you should be documenting it uh, and making notes as to uh, what you've discussed, what you've agreed upon, who was present, um, again, um, that's just good practice. It's good practice, but it's also um, it's also I mean it, it's also some insurance for you as well. Um, so we consult about uh, what adjustments we're going to make. Part of that information exercise or gathering exercise also um, is asking them to um, asking the families to provide that information, but also asking if necessary if they would be agreeable to you getting or to the school obtaining professional advice in relation to a particular child's disability. Uh, and that's a, that's a really good measure on both, on, for both the family and also the school. Okay. Um, and from there, um, you, you can make the adjustments that you need to make, you think you need to make, to facilitate uh, the enrolment. So I'm going to stop there because we're sort of halfway through the process and I welcome any thoughts, questions or queries from what I've discussed so far. I can see a question from Gabby Moore. Mm -hmm. Is there, are there any definitions for reasonable adjustments? What is there is. Um, it's a good question, Gabby, because um, there's, there's, there's a definition for what adjustment is and there's also a definition for a reasonable adjustments, and I'll, I'll touch on reasonable adjustments shortly. I suppose the term reasonable adjustments, one way to think of it is um, a school is required to make reasonable adjustments, okay? But a school is also not required to make unreasonable adjustments, and I'll discuss that shortly as well. But um, I'll, I'll touch on reasonable adjustments in that definition shortly. Um, anything else? Uh, Lise, somebody, not sure if perhaps, um, perhaps, Ben, I'll read out my comment if that, if that helps. Um, if the issue is really around discrimination, um, if we are a grammar school focused on a um, high academic, and if we uh, say there's a requirement that students get an A or, or a B or whatever to come into the school, um, then a, a child with a disability doesn't meet that standard. That's not discrimination, is that correct? And uh, not only around, um, uh, around grades, but if we have uh, certain standards that we don't allow boys to come in when they need, have a needs improvement in behaviour, 
Um, therefore, if I've got an ASD boy hanging from the rafters, uh, as an example, um, do, am I discriminating by not allowing him when his behaviour doesn't meet our normal standards? Sorry, uh, who's I got, first of all? Sorry, Scott Huntington, Churchy. Oh, sorry, Scott, sorry. Um, I just missed that last bit, mate. It just broke up a bit. Yeah, I was just saying, about if, if, if behaviour is also an issue um, where we wouldn't allow a, a boy in generally uh, who, who doesn't have a disability, um, and we also wouldn't allow a boy to come in with bad behaviour who has a disability, is there any issue of discrimination? That's, that's actually a, a more complex question than, it, than, than you would think because it goes to um, what's called what the actual comparator of that particular situation is. And it's probably um, a bit too, too complex for the conversation this afternoon. Um, I suppose getting back to the initial question, um, as I said, the school, it's a statutory requirement that the school must take steps to treat uh, or, or to, to treat the student on the same basis, uh, the enrolment of the student on the same basis that would for children that, uh, that don't have a disability. Um, um, you would have to, um, I, I, would be, I would be very, very cautious uh, uh, on that footing um, in relation to saying you must get an A or you must get a B. Uh, to 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 uh, to be able to essentially that's what you're saying is that right? That's that's not our policy. But if we were to run a policy like that, oh, oh sorry, yes, yes, um, um, that would be, um, in my view, that would be a very difficult policy to run. Sorry, so just on that then, Ben, it's Trish again. So how do selective schools then work within this model? Uh, how do selective schools? I must admit, Trish, I haven't, I haven't turned my mind to how selective schools fit within this model. It hasn't something I haven't done. Um, it's not something I've seen in Queensland um, in relation to, um, um, you know, I, I know in New South Wales they have um, uh, entrance levels. Is that right? Yes, that's so, right. They have to sit in an entrance exam and get a certain grade to enter. So I'm just wondering how that ties in with disability and how are they therefore rejecting a student with a disability in light of that discussion? Right. They're not necessarily rejecting them uh, because they have a disability, they're rejecting because they didn't get a certain grade. So um, in other words, um, someone may not have a disability who doesn't get that grade um, and someone who does have a disability doesn't get that grade. So there's no, there's no difference. Oh, that, okay. That's right. That's what I thought Scott was perhaps alluding yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that is what I was saying. That um, in that situation, I don't see that there'd be discrimination because the standards are being applied consistently, whether you have a disability or don't. Yeah, I must admit, I haven't really, really turned my mind too much to that particular issue, uh, simply because it's not something I've come across. Um, I suppose it's not, it's, I don't think it would be a common occurrence um, because most schools, most schools aren't academically selective. Any further comments?
Obviously, in Queensland, we have the uh, uh, the academies, which are state run, and uh, obviously they're academically selective. And I would suggest that there's not many children with disabilities in those schools. Uh, which academies are they? Pardon me. Which academies are they? Uh, there's there's two academies, uh, the state run academies, Queensland, Cracky or something. <laughs> there's an arts one and there's a science one. Yeah, yeah. This state run. Um, I suppose taking if we took out of this particular situation, let's take out, let's say we take out the mild intellectual disability has ASD and um, um, he and, and they achieve they achieve the uh, the the um, the required standards if you like to um, to um, to get into a selective academic school, um, then obviously. You would then um, you would then just focus on on the ASD and what adjustments you would need to make in relation to that particular uh, disability. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. Yeah. All right. We'll keep chugging along because I've still got to get through half of this, and then we've got to move on to another topic. Um, so we talked about reasonable adjustments before, um, and um, adjustments. So a reasonable adjustment um, is, um, and this is straight from from the standards. You look at a number of different things, um, and regards should be had to all the relevant circumstances of interest, including the student's disability, um, the view of the student or the student's associate, and the effect of the adjustment on the student, including the effect on the student's ability to achieve learning outcomes the ability to participate in causal programs, independence, uh, and the effect of the proposed adjustment on anyone else affected, including the education provider, staff, and our students. So in other words, you're not just looking at the effect the reasonable adjustments are going to have on the child. Um, you would also look at, at the effect it's going to have on, on others, including, as I said, staff, um, um, other students, um, and, and providers. So it's not just a, an assessment of the uh, of the particular of the particular um, child and, and their disability. You look at you look at as a, as a whole. Um, I mentioned before, a school is not required to make um, unreasonable adjustments. And there was a particular case in Victoria um, a few years ago um, in relation to. Um, uh, it was 2015, and it was called RW versus State of Victoria. Um, and uh, long story short, this particular child um, had, had uh, was autistic and had a moderate intellectual disability, and um, um, and and wished and uh, wished to go to a a a, 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 um, a mainstream school. Um, what they required, what the family required from the school, were a number of different adjustments. And the court actually held that the adjustments that they sought were actually unreasonable. So what they actually sought um, was a full-time dedicated aid, um, and the school held that um, that a full-time dedicated aid was was not reasonable. Uh, the, the court held, well, sorry, the tribunal I should say held that failure to provide a full-time aid did not prejudice the student from participating in the school program. Okay, um, so even though the, the family wanted a full-time aid, um, um, providing that full-time aid um, 
uh, was an unreasonable adjustment. So the court or the tribunal held that they didn't have to provide that. Um, the formal communication method, um, they wanted the speech pathologist as part of the adjustments. And again, the, the commission found that the significant individualised plan is put forward by the school. So the school actually put forward a, a plan to assist with um, the communication method. Uh, was sufficient and the adjustment suggested by the student would not have put, sorry, would not have produced any better outcome than what the school was going to suggest. So the school put forward um, a suggested outcome or suggested an adjustment and um, the, uh, the, the, the parents put out an adjustment or put forward an adjustment and that particular adjustment um, uh, was held to be unreasonable as such. Um, and I also actually wanted the, um, a behaviour plan supervised by a psychologist. Um, so um, um, again, this the, the, the tribunal held that that particular adjustment sought was unreasonable, um, and um, uh, the school successfully defended uh, a um, an action in discrimination. Um, the last thing uh, I'll just touch on very briefly in relation to this is unjustifiable hardship. Is everyone familiar with the term unjustifiable hardship? Yep. Um, essentially, unjustifiable hardship is a um, is a is a is a defence to a uh, to a um, to a complaint of discrimination. So, what the school would actually do is they would say that the adjustment that we are required to make is going to cause us a hardship which is which is unjustifiable, and uh, the. Um, the different acts, the different state acts, some of them actually will define what unjustifiable hardship is and others, others don't. The, the, um, the Disability Discrimination Act uh, does define it in Section 11. Um, and one of the things or the things that, will, that a school would have to look for uh, is um, in relation to whether something is an unjustifiable hardship is the nature of the benefit or detriment likely to accrue or be suffered by any person that's concerned, uh, the effect of the disability of a person concerned. This is important, the financial circumstance and the estimated amount of expenditure required to be made by the person claiming unjustifiable hardship. So in other words, um, if there was to be some huge modifications made to a particular campus as a result of a child who might be in a wheelchair or something like that, um, um, if indeed it was going to place um, a huge burden on a school's budget, then that would be unjustifiable. You could argue that it's unjustifiable hardship. Um, obviously, one of the things that a, a tribunal will look at is um, whether or not, you know, the, the financial status of the school, whether they have adequate funds to do that. Um, that's why, the, you know, spending a lot of money on a, on a, on a new indoor pool um, might um, might be a difficult argument to suggest that they don't have the funds to, to assist with a student um, with a disability. Um, alternatively, um, the school might also have access to external funds through, uh, through different grants that you can get for children with disabilities. So if you can access those, again, that might be um, something which may, may make um, uh, the defence of unjustifiable hardship a little bit more difficult. All right. That's it for this topic. We've only got 20 more minutes. Has anyone got any further comments in relation to what we've been discussing um, uh, in relation? I suppose in summary, with, with this particular topic, it is a, it's, it's a very sensitive topic. 
um, it's a topic where people who, whose, whose uh, children have disabilities are normally very cognizant of their rights, and it's something which you ought to um, proceed with caution. Um, I, I can't encourage you enough to ensure that you have a, a policy, uh, an enrolment policy for special needs. It's a very, very important document because it sets out the processes which you will follow, uh, which should comply with the uh, Disability Standards for Education. It sets out the, um, the processes and procedures you should follow. So again, I really, I really do encourage you to, to, if you haven't already got a policy like that, to, um, to really think about getting one. Then, Any comment? There is, I think you did answer this question already, but I'm just going to rephrase it. Like Francine Challens, if this, in okay, so if the, the, you've done the collaborative process and you've done the consultative process with the parents and this college does not have the support mechanisms in place to support the student, and that in order for the enrollment to, play, to take place, the college would have to, uh, be at a financial disadvantage to provide that support. Can they decline enrollment? Would that be considered an unreasonable adjustment? Okay, so I suppose the adjustment that would be required would be to um, to have that extra resource, whatever it is. Okay, um, whatever that particular resource is, and, and 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 a dollar figure for that. And if that's adjustment that's required to to allow the child to enrol. Um, the college or the school, very cautiously and with good legal advice, would um, say, okay, sorry, we can't provide that. Um, most likely that would bring a discrimination complaint and the defence to that discrimination complaint would be that it puts the school in unjustifiable hardship to implement it. And that's it. Unjustifiable hardship is a defence, okay? So the reasonable adjustment after the consultation process is finished is it's obvious that it's it's a certain resource, and that resource is a very costly resource. Um, you just say, look, we, we don't have the funds to do it. Um, and if, if there was a discrimination complaint, the defence to that would be um, the, uh, would be unjustifiable hardship, but the expense that you would be put to to actually uh, implement that adjustment um, is cost prohibitive. Um, I have a question. My, my name is Shannon from Cranbrook. Um, we've had, uh, we've sort of, you know, had these circumstances in the past where, you know, a, a family's come to us and their child has a... Three? Yeah. Sorry, oh, you're cutting in there. Sorry, can, is that better? Yeah. yeah. Um, sorry. Um, so if families come to us, their child say has ASD, um, we've, they, we've been provided with reports, we've, you know, uh, contacted their consultants, doctors. Uh, when the child actually does start with us, um, a whole lot of uh, other range of issues kind of arise that we weren't informed of. Yeah, um, okay. And, you know, uh, that sometimes can become very difficult, you know, and does put pressure on students yep. and whatnot. So um, what would be the best way to sort of, I guess, okay. deal with that? It's a, it's a really good question and it's something that's not uncommon and it's not uncommon because people, I think, uh, with children with disabilities are concerned that if they explain everything about it, then the child might not get uh, and be allowed to enter the school, be enrolled at the school. And I suppose this is, this is, a, this is a, a legacy of, of gatekeeping practices. Um, 
the way I approach it is I actually be, I'm proactive. So whenever I draft an enrolment contract, uh, one of the provisions in that kind, it's a very important provision, is in, in relation to information that relates to special needs of children. And what I mean by that is the, the provision that I include in my contracts is that you acknowledge that you have provided to the school all information relevant to special needs, and we define special needs in the, in the definition section. Um, they give a warranty that they have provided all that information. We then say we seek that information pursuant to the privacy policy of the school, and we also then um, put another insurance provision in there which says that um, we only use that information pursuant to the privacy policy, because obviously when you're seeking that information in relation to a disability, um, it's personal information, it's probably sensitive information too under the Privacy Act, and you can only use that information uh, for the manner in which it's sought. And this particular instance is obviously to, to determine, you know, what adjustments you need to make. And then the final clause we will put in is that um, it's an essential term of the contract. So at law, an essential term is one that if indeed it's breached, uh, you can terminate the contract. So you can probably see where I'm going with this. So in other words, it will uh, allow a school to um, terminate a contract if indeed information which a family is required to provide has not been provided. Now, that's a pretty big clause, and obviously you'd only um, use it to uh, with, with proper legal advice. Um, and we're not treating any family differently. It's actually a breach of contract. So in other words, they haven't provided information which is essential to the, term, to, to the contract uh, are remaining on foot. Not all uh, school uh, enrolment contracts have that, and school enrolment contracts are a com another conversation we could have at another time because they're a very, very important document. They regulate, you know, 25 to $30 million worth of fees each year in a lot of schools. Um, in a situation where you don't have that particular provision, um, really all you can do is, is, uh, is follow the process that, that I've just discussed with you, the consultation, um, um, the consultation process about what adjustments you can make and if indeed it, it turns out that, um, you know, um, similar to that scenario just, I just discussed before where the family didn't give you all the information and now you've got all this other information where the, the adjustments you need to make just can't be made, then obviously you, you, uh, you, you would have that discussion with the family. But I think... Pardon me, the easiest way to, to address it is to actually address it at enrolment and to have a provision which makes it a, a legal requirement that all that information is provided. And it's only fair that it's provided because if it's not provided, you have situations like what you're discussing, and that is um, um, where all of a sudden you, you, you've got these issues which obviously haven't been budgeted for in a, in a school budget. Um, and also that they, that, that might be, um, you know, modifications to buildings or, or, or staffing levels um, and the like. So um, that information um, is very, very important. So as I said, I, I take a proactive approach and that is required to be provided at the beginning. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah, it just, it's just such a... It's not a good way to start the relationship either between no. the family and the school, you know, so... Um, thank you for that. Thanks for answering. Yep. Anyone else? And there are two more questions. Mm -hmm. Is there a standard exceptional learners review form that would work across all states? 
Sorry, is there a standard learners? Exceptional learners review form. Um, not that I'm aware of, Sona, no. Okay. And then John is, John's saying, if a school had no debt, but is a very low income school, would unjustifiable hardship stand? So the school's got very few debts, but what was the next bit? Low income school. So I guess they see low income. Oh, oh, low fee school. Yeah, I guess. Low yeah, fee okay, school. yeah. I, I, again, it's a subjective assessment, and there's actually a really good case um, called um, uh, Finney and um, Hills um, from 1999, um, Scarlet Finney, and um, I forget the school's name. And um, in fact, if you just Google it, if you look Scarlet Finney Spina Bifida, you'll come up with it. And um, it discusses um, that the, the commissioner in that particular case, or tribunal member, discusses. The, how they actually arose at the uh, finding that the school wasn't unjustifiably put to hardship, which alleged that it was. And it, it's, a re, it's a long decision, but it's a really good way of a school understanding what, if, what things uh, a tribunal or a commission will look at when determining um, what is unjustifiable hardship. Because it's, it's not just a one-size-fits-all. It really looks at all the different circumstances of the school. Um, and, yes, low debt low fees, that's going to have a, that's going to be treated differently to a school that might be highly geared, but also charge a lot of fees. Um, so each particular situation is different, but I really do commend that to you. If you look up Finney 1999 Spina Bifida, you'll come to that particular decision. All right, it's 10 to four, and I know we've got to finish shortly, so I'm going to keep rocking and rolling. Um, so we'll move on to the last topic. And this is an interesting topic, and I think it's going to be one that we're going to see more and more of in the future. Um, it's uh, statements made orally or in print in relation to what a school can offer and the possible implications under the Competition Consumer Act uh, if statements are misleading. Uh, for those of you, you may have heard of or you may remember the Trade Practices Act, um, Section 52 of the Trade Practices Act. It was a 1974 piece of legislation, a very important piece of legislation. That was Section 52 of the um, Trade Practices Act was the uh, misleading deceptive conduct provisions. When the um, Competition and Consumer Act of 2010 was enacted, um, it incorporated as a schedule what's called the Australian Consumer Law and the old Section 52, which dealt with the misleading deceptive conduct, um, was, um, was um, put in Section 18 of this particular schedule. So we're going to have a look at this, examine this, and then look at a scenario and then have a quick discussion and then we probably will have to finish. So um, in relation to Section 18, I've broken it down and there's some important, um, and then there's a lot to do with when it comes to statutory interpretation, obviously breaking down a particular provision. So we'll just go through it step by step. Obviously, a person has a very wide legal definition. A person at law is not just me or you. It, it can also include a corporation um, or a legal entity. So in this particular situation, sorry, in this particular situation, a person um, um, would include a school. Um, so as a school in trade and commerce, um, any takers on that? As a school in trade and commerce, anyone got any suggestions or whether it is? Pretty. It is. A, there's no. It is a pretty simple answer. Um, of course, it is. 
um, uh, obviously schools put out, um, they market, they compete against each other, independent schools. So they are very much in trade and commerce. Uh, and um, some might even think, oh, well, are they in trade and commerce if they're a not-for-profit not organisation? Well, yes, they are. Um, um, it, it, it covers um, whether or not a particular uh, school is not-for-profit. So engaging in contact, engaging in conduct, do schools engage in, engage in conduct that could mislead, be misleading and deceptive? Any takers on that? Nicholas said yes. Yes, <laughs> that's the right answer. Sorry. Um, um, so yes, I mean, obviously, a school can engage in conduct which can mislead and, and be deceptive. I mean, um, you can say you can make statements orally. You can um, you can put stuff in prospectus. You can put stuff on the internet. Um, so so yes. So we've ticked all these boxes, and misleading and deceptive. Um, so. Um, any any takers on what misleading and deceptive might include? It's something it's something that uh, I think, and I'm not suggesting people in in enrolment or schools that uh, deliberately mislead and deceive, but I think it's something that people need to reflect on um, when they're actually in the got the, the adrenaline flowing, you know that this particular family is looking at, at another school or a couple of different schools and you really want to get them at your school, um, what you actually say, and I'm not saying you're being untruthful, misleading or deceptive, I suppose what I'm saying is uh, you, you need to take a deep breath and, and, and very much think um, what you do say to make sure that um, it can't mislead or be deceptive. Um, I suppose cutting to the chase, there's a lot of law on misleading deceptive conduct. I suppose, as I said, a lot of the topics I've discussed today um, are actually a lot more complex than what we're discussing. And I'm not going to go into the bowels of, of what is misleading or deceptive. Suffice to say that you probably all uh, have a fair idea of, of what is misleading and deceptive. Um, specific though to independent schools, what a, what a court will look at is uh, a statement or whatever it is in relation to um, are being misleading and deceptive. Um, they have to look at the category of person that um, that the, that the uh, particular statement is being made to. So, in other words, if they're making, if if someone has heard a statement in relation to um, an independent school that has no interest about um, going to that particular school, seeing their children at that particular school, then it's arguable that that particular statement doesn't apply. But obviously, if you're talking to parents that are uh, considering sending their children to an independent education, it's very much uh, in the crosshairs, so to speak. Um, and the test is uh, as to whether or not promotional material is misleading or deceptive is determined by the impact it has on the reasonable and ordinary parent. Uh, when it comes to, uh, to lot, lots of matters in law, um, you will always hear the reasonable person test. What would a reasonable person think? What would a reasonable person do in the circumstances? And and this is this is no this is no different. Okay, so I've given you a little bit of of, of uh, section eighteen, just a bit of a breakdown. So we've got this scenario here in front of us, 
and it, my apologies, I've got to read up on the screen because I haven't got it in front of me. So uh, the Boone family have enrolled their son David in Year 7 in 2014. Uh, the Boone family went to a number of school open days and relied upon a glossy brochure that contained stunning colour photographs of perfectly manicured grounds, students with beaming smiles, state-of-the-art buildings and a variety of instruments being played by very talented students. It also contained text that stated that it was committed to helping students reach their full potential and grow as people. The text was full of glowing adjectives about its teachers and was reasonably consistent with what other schools would say. So that's what they did. Then 2021 rolls along. David was unsuccessful in retaining a place at university to study medicine. His parents attempted to sue the school, alleging the brochure was misleading and deceptive because its glowing adjectives that described its excellent teachers was nearly not correct. Had the school provided excellent teachers and the brochures indicated, uh, he would not have gained entry into medicine. He would have gained entry, I should say, into medicine. So what do we say about that? Any takers? Anyone got any thoughts? Have 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 the Boone family been misled? All right. So we have one message. Mm -hmm. Ah, no, this is an older one. Nah, no messages. What is the measure of excellence they are using by Philip? What is it? Um, well, that's there's no measure. It's just a it's just a statement. Melan Ali said no. The reason I put this, two reasons I put this up there. Um, it's not uncommon for you know for schools, and of course they're they they're um they want to sell their product. And uh, yeah, so they do put up um, some beautiful photographs of children and, and, and school, uh, sorry, and buildings and things like that. And they make some some glowing remarks about resources and things like that. Um, is that situation? Have they relied upon that? Have they been misled in this particular situation? Are they being misled? Julie Cooper says very difficult to prove. Yep. Gabby, yeah, Moore, how can this be proven again? Yep. Yep. They made their own decision to enroll, and this college has sold the college to them. Yep. Okay. Cutting to the chase, um, this is actually mirrored off a particular case um, in um, in Victoria from a few years ago um, called Weir versus Geelong Grammar School. And basically, I haven't. I've nearly cut. I've just changed the, the names and and just manipulated it a little bit. Um, but in that particular, so, so, so this scenario I've given you has essentially been tested by a court uh, and the court said this, and, this, and in this particular instance, the, the, the student's name was a student called Rose and Rose wanted to study law. And it said the school contracted to provide its resources to Rose whilst she was a student and it did so. The school did not contract to get Rose into law at Sydney Uni. It did not contract to create a special curriculum for Rose to place her in a gifted and talented program to dedicate special resources to Rose over and above the high levels of resources that it made available to other students. The school did not contract to supply individual tuition. It is a school, by publicising a positive education curriculum, the school was not contracting to have Rose achieve a particular set of results. So what actually was what this particular instance is, and also the instance in Weir versus Geelong Grammar School, it's called puffery. Okay, it's referred to as a, in the legal context called puffery. So a puff 
is best described as a superlative or comparative test that is a self-evident exaggeration unlikely to mislead okay so it's basically putting it out there but most people would know it's 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 an you know could could be could be deemed to be uh, an exaggeration and could be misleading uh, sorry sorry not it's 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 not designed to be misleading i should say um so so this particular instance it's a puffery and it wouldn't be misleading now um, very quickly, I'm just going to pose a couple of other scenarios. So this is sort of a bit glossy, subjective. Um, the scenarios I'm going to pose to you, though, are this. What happens if the school prospectus or, or open day or whatever it was said, we cap our classes at 20 students, okay, or our students always perform well in NAPLAN examinations, or we have the necessary resources to address any literary problems? All students receive a MAC and a full backup service. Teaching areas include a state-of-the-art science centre, or we offer tutorials in all subjects. So you can see the difference between those statements and that puffery, okay? Um, what are your thoughts on those particular statements? If, if you actually said, we cap our class, you, you publicise that we cap our classes at 20, and in fact, you actually went to 22 or 23, or um, our students always perform well in NAPLAN um, examinations and a couple of years in a row they do poorly. What are your thoughts in relation to that? Yeah, well, Joel B does say misleading unless supported with hard and fast data. Mill and Ali, we can still have a great marketing strategy. We need to be truthful. Uh, we need to ensure we are able to prove. Yeah. Yep. Anyone else? Okay. Trish, the, that list is measurable, which is yep. problematic if the school doesn't meet those standards. Spot on. Absolutely. Gabby, we need to deliver on what you say you offer. Correct. Correct. I suppose. Um, the reason I've included this particular topic this afternoon is simply because um, independent schooling every year becomes more and more expensive. Uh, and, and, and for various reasons, obviously, the cost of labour, resources, and, and, and the, the, the education which independent schools provide children is, is obviously very, very high. And I get that. Um, I think that as, as the cost of education increases, I think you're going to have parents becoming more discerning in what, um, in um, the reasons they choose a particular school. And if they choose a particular school because they've been told something or they've read something and it's objective like, you know, these other statements here that I've just put forward and they rely upon that. Um, I'm not saying this is going to open the floodgates. What I'm trying to say to you is, um, be cautious in how you present your marketing material to ensure that um, you can back it up because um, yep, as, as independent schooling becomes more and more expensive, parents become more discerning. If you say something, they rely upon it, then something happens and things go pear-shaped, which, as we all know, can sometimes happen in schools. Um, you may have... Um, this, this could be around the corner. So it's more just a... It's more just a slow burn, this particular issue. It's not something that's um, like uh, like the first two topics we, we discussed, um, enrolling uh, 
children from families that are separated or, or those children that, with, with disabilities. They are in your face, they are here and now, and they are complex issues. This is more of a slow burn, and I really would encourage you when you, as I said, when you, when you are writing your marketing material, making your adverts and what have you, to ensure that um, you back up um, what you're saying. And I suppose the other thing is, with this is, um, and I'll, um, these are some, these are some um, uh, resources I use. That, that top um, particular paper is a really interesting paper from 2009, um, and I'd encourage you to read it um, because it's, a, it's actually an academic paper, and, and, and some of this material that I have relied upon that as a resource. Um, and um, it, it takes you through a more in-depth discussion and it does allude to the fact that um, um, some, I mean, a lot of this doesn't get to the litigated stage where it gets to a court determination. Sometimes parties will settle. So when parties settle privately, you don't actually necessarily know about it. So um, um, either way, um, I would be, um, I'd just be cautious in the material you put out, um, be professional about it. Um, and make sure that um, you don't sort of put yourself in a position where you could get into a bit of strife. All right, Sonna, any any further questions? Happy to take questions on anything. We are we are sort of going over. Thank you for your time, Ben. I have one question out there. Question not related to this. With wait lists, are yeah. schools obliged to order by application enrollment date, or is it? Subjective on a range of matters. Look, it's subjective on a range of matters. But the only thing I'd say, though, is if indeed you have an enrolment policy, if you have an enrolment policy which you publish and um, it sets out a certain procedure, then you must follow that procedure. Yeah. Um, um, because there's obviously there would be issues uh, if you didn't follow that procedure. Although, in saying that, though, um, in law, you've got to have a you've got to have a cause of action, and um, there's no contract between a, a a parent on a waiting list and a school. So what I'm trying to say there is, even though there is an enrolment policy, it doesn't yet form any part of a contract with the school, so you can't actually sue in contract. Um, it is still a pretty um, ugly look, though, if indeed you have a policy and you don't follow it. Um, obviously, you can apply pressure in other ways. Um, so, um, but no, there's no hard and fast. Well, obviously, um, you can't um, um, make a, a order of priority in relation to a particular child if it's based on, a, on, on any particular attribute, which um, may offend the Anti-Discrimination Act. So that's obviously race, religion, or it's, that's a no-brainer, race, religion, um, all those types of things. Um, obviously, sorry, um, um, I shouldn't say religion because... Um, there are some exceptions uh, in relation to um, religion when it comes to discrimination. Um, but um, obviously race, sex, sexuality, all those types of things, um, uh, you, um, you wouldn't obviously um, work out what the, the actual order is based on those particular things. Fantastic. Just a lot of comments coming in, Ben, thanking you uh, yep. for this session, for the, yeah, for all the information. Uh, Sue, did you have anything? 
All right. No, just, just a big thank you to Ben. I think everybody's um, got a lot out of today. And the fact that we've gone over time is a um, surefire um, sign that it was a very worthwhile topic. Thanks yeah. very much, Ben. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. And um, I'll have to. Um, if, yeah, and if anyone's got any further questions, by all means, I'm, I'm happy uh, if they wish to get in touch with me, I'm happy to answer those. So, um, but no, um, no, it's been a pleasure and thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Ben, again. Thank you, everyone. Have a nice evening. Thank you. All right.